Evening, morning, wherever it, whatever the time is with you. Welcome back to Waiting for the Call Up, Season 3. We're on to Episode 2 now. I'm joined as always by Will Brown. Will, how you doing? I'm very well, mate. I'm very well. How are you doing? Yeah, all good, mate. All good. Um, uh, looking forward to the roadmap out of out of lockdown, as uh, as as Boris announced not too long ago now. Um, looking forward to tonight's pod. And um, yeah, keep keep it keeping well, mate. Keeping well. T- tonight's pod, obviously, we're we're starting our debunking myths. Um, so we're looking at the myth or potentially the truth that footballers are overpaid. So looking forward to that tonight. Um, but for, first, we'll, we'll we'll look into the news. Um, lots happened actually since our last episode, especially England related. Mostly <laughs> negative, unfortunately. Um, yeah, probably you know gloss over it probably quite quickly. Just move yeah, through it. Get straight yeah, exactly, exactly that. And we've done a fair bit of research actually. I'm quite impressed with both of us for um, for sticking at it for this for tonight's episode. <laughs> so stay, stay stay tuned for that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, should we should we quickly look at how our predictions are standing for the for the um, football, rugby, and cricket? Well, that's what I wanted to be fair. I'll happily look at the football ones, but the, the rugby ones are a bit of a nightmare. We've done quite yeah. well on the football, though. Do you want to remind football us what we have? At the moment, are, um, the, top, the top four is Man City, Man United, Leicester, and West Ham. I don't think any of us predicted West Ham to be there, but um, I think the rest of I think the rest of the top top three we kind of had. Um, but the question, yeah. the question mark is whether the top four is really interesting. I mean, we'll come on to it, but whether Leicester could hold on to that spot. Um, don't think West Ham will, but Spurs winning tonight, Liverpool, Chelsea, big teams. Some, someone's going to miss out. Um, so it'll be interesting yeah. to see who it is. Everton yeah, playing tonight against West Brom. Pretty much a dead cert win. Yeah, so I think they did, they did win, mate. Everton, Everton yeah. yeah. They they did, but well, bottled it at home as Liverpool, sorry, Leicester bottled it at home to the mighty Gooners at the weekend. So, yeah, exactly. Um, wow. Elsewhere, Champions League, not much. To, again, we'll pick up this, pick up on this in the news. But both of us have gone for Bayern Munich there, and I don't think that's looking too much of a threat. And then yeah. Euros, um, obviously a long way off, but I think we should mention this now. Are the Euros going to be in England or the UK? Okay. Boris, Boris wants football to come home. That's what he Boris wants. Boris The word he, he uses is <laughs> He's such a clown. But, um, he's, yeah, he's, this week he's announced that, um, well, there's various rumours that just because of the vaccination programme um, that the expectation is England will be in a good position to host it in terms of fans and, like, stadium on its own. And, obviously, travel is going to be a nightmare, so they don't want to have it across different countries. Um so it could well be coming home. And at the same time, he's announced he's bidding for the World Cup in 2030. Yeah, I saw that as well. <laughs> Mate, he's trying to cement his place as the best, the biggest bloody idiot ever. I mean, I love it. I'd love the World Cup to be here in 2030. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so football at the moment, my prediction of England to win is looking very much spot on, especially if we end up hosting the tournament. So, love it. Boris. Is, is, he, <laughs> is that why he's wanting to host it? <laughs> um, on on the rugby, I think we we should come on that in, come on to that in the news. But both of us are basically way off because neither of us could foresee um, Wales basically paying the um, match officials to help them win the tournament this year. We both sort of predicted <laughs> England to have a better chance. <laughs> Mate, both of um, us said they'd be fit respectively, so we are miles off. Miles off. 
Um, so let's brush over that and move on to the cricket. Cricket, I'll tell you what, mate, you predicted Ashford to be the top wicket-taker. We'll come on to his heroics and the pitch and all that later, shortly, but he, he's currently the top wicket-taker in the series, 20, 24 wickets. Boomer, my shout, nowhere near it, not even playing in the in the last test. Don't know why I was thinking there, to be honest. And then <laughs> top runs, Joe Root's still at the top, but maybe Rohit Sharma could, could be taking him soon. But all results are still kind of on the cards in terms of a series scoreline, so we um we're both still in the in the running there. Yeah, I have to say I don't think either. I think I think we're losing this test. I can't see us winning this test. Don't don't be the voice of doom. Well, we've got every chance. Every <laughs> chance. Um, I think that takes us nicely onto the news, though. It does, doesn't it? it does, doesn't it? Would you want to start start on the rugby the rugby sides? Yeah, let's get the bad news out of the way first. Out of the way. Well, it was another Six Nations calamity for England. Losing in Cardiff, 40-24. Pretty convincingly by a scoreline to Wales. Um, I mean, to take the positives, it was probably quite an entertaining game for people that aren't a fan of either team. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a good... It was drama, right? drama fueled. Yeah. Full of the drama. So, I mean, cut straight to the chase. Two massive refereeing decisions, which have really divided opinion, to be fair. Um, one was a quick penalty taken to score Wales' first try, and the next one was a knock-on, not knock-on um, for their second try, which, you know, for England, I think I think it was this, like, 14... I can't remember how many points behind we were at that point, but we came out really well, actually. The game was very much alive. Like, when... In open play, it was really good, but just couldn't couldn't bring it back, and they were just too much at the end. But what did you think of the decisions? What, what's your what's your yeah? Your I, think you're, I think you're right. It was about it probably took the margin after those two decisions about 17, 17 six. I think yeah. I think um, what what's happened since is obviously everyone's had their say. What I, what I do think is the ref, referee himself, Pascal goes there. Sorry, that was a very English way of saying it, a French word. <laughs> Um, has has actually come out himself and said he's made some mistakes. So I think that sort of says it all. I think the people that actually do know the rules, um, you know, someone like Nigel Owens, has kind of has kind of just said he's made two mistakes there. And everyone makes mistakes. It's you know it's fine. Um, but ultimately, I think pe- people should actually just admit that that that, that scoreline is not right. And um, I the result potentially isn't right. That I do I do think. It was the, the first try, you know, taking the quick penalty was was pretty 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 um, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and, and it's and I felt I felt England, as you say, handled it quite well. Um, and then the set the second one was um, was just a standard standard knock on, and nine times out of ten that's that's given as such. I think um, as you sort of alluded to, England did bounce back quite well. We got to about we actually had a kick kick to level right, which Farrell yeah. missed to go twenty seven all. It's just one of those I think with England at the moment. All the time, I just whenever something doesn't go quite right in the game, whether it, and in this example it was the penalties, it was just the lack of ability to sort of um, bounce back and and sort of find a different way to go about things, which which I always just find frustrating, and um, yeah. it's been sort of the case for years now. To be fair, very interesting though. I actually thought we did bounce back quite well initially. I mean, we didn't change the penalties, which is a huge issue. But I actually thought we we played we played well under the cot. Um, yeah. It's encouraging, yeah. I just, it's just I thought we were much improved actually this week in 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 taking everything away, um, yes, and players exactly, like Billy exactly. 
I thought I thought England were much better, as you say. Sorry, and then you, as you say, Mako, Billy, etc. Um, yeah, it's just that's what sort of was most frustrated about it. Always, we we were so much better. We just didn't have the result with us. No, exactly. So I don't know really what happens from here. Like it's 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 a bit. It's kind of the worst possible Six Nations result for us, even if we win the remaining two games, um, because it doesn't really give you a clear. By the way, we've not won it and we've not absolutely lost it. So, like, what do you do? Read in quite an interesting stat that Eddie Jones has capped 11 players since the World Cup, which is actually a lot of players. Um, but on the other hand, if Tuolangi and Underhill had been fit this weekend, he could have picked exactly the same team that started the World Cup final. So, it's that kind of weird balance between are we actually moving on or are we just kind of flogging the same dead horse? So, difficult, difficult. Time, yeah, right? I'm actually really surprised by that 11, 11 players that I can't really think yeah. of who they are. I can't obviously think of a couple, but that does surprise me because it does just feel like it is has been the same team since since the World Cup, um, just barring injuries. But yeah, as you said, it'd be good to see see us actually blood some more more players and actually just give them a longer run in the team. I think it would be an ideal time to do so when you've got the whole Saracen situation going on and all those players. But to be fair, unless you say the Vunapola has played well, so who knows? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, elsewhere, um, the only other game of the weekend, actually, which was controversial for another reason, which we'll come on to, but Ireland beat Italy convincingly in, in Rome. God, to be honest, I was pretty bored. Didn't really enjoy it. I mean, Ireland did play pretty well, but I'm just not, I don't know, I don't want to kind of go on about it, but I'm just not finding the Italy games entertaining. I can't really be, always be bothered to watch them, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think the point I would make on that as well is Italy actually just always seem quite fired up, which I've been quite enjo- quite enjoying. Yeah, but like, it does it yeah. does just appear that um, when Italy play a team other than sort of the worst, the second to worst team of the tournament or England, they do not seem to get they do not seem to perform for whatever reason. It's as you say, it's really frustrating. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, on the, on the positive on Ireland though. Yeah, no, Ireland looks a lot better. They looked a lot better. Which was good, um, but yeah, just one of those games really. So yeah, convincing move for Ireland. They had some young players playing. They looked pretty good actually. So yeah, encouraging. It's kind of I thought that game is actually very symptomatic of the Six Nations and that it's like it's a bit of a nothing year. As in like there's no World Cup. There's no, there's no, fans. no fans. It just is what it is this year. Obviously, I'd say that now because we're getting pumped. But. <laughs> <laughs> and then. Yeah, finally, as I said, you know, the third game of the weekend on Sunday, which is going to be an absolute classic, I think, France-Scotland um, in Paris was postponed um, because of COVID-19 outbreak in the French camp. I think 10 players were isolating. Um, and there's been lots of chat about why this is the case. And I think, you have to correct me if I'm wrong or if you've heard something else, but I think it's because the coach, Fabien Galtier, went to watch his son play rugby the weekend or like in the days after the last game. There's been lots of chat because primarily because when they won in Dublin for the first time in 10, 15 years, they had a huge thing in the dressing room and there were videos of the wall like jumping around with no masks on. Um, oh, I've loved those videos to be fair as well. Uh, mate, it was class. It was just like with so much normality. I was like, this looks, oh, you just want to be in there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you've heard anything else, but it sounds like it's actually the coach that's let them all down. No, yeah, I, I, that's the story I've heard as well. What's actually interesting is about... I don't know, a couple of days before that was actually sort of outed. The initial blame was actually at the Irish press for being yeah. close to the 
French, so obviously that sort of massively backfired because um, obviously the French were looking to blame other people. Um, but as you say, it's, it's a real shame because the game against Scotland's being postponed. There's no idea when that will be replayed. And also it just... Um, it just kind of will just cast a little bit of a shadow over the city. Not a shadow in terms of like a bad, like a bad thing, but just sort of mean it, it's not completed on time. It just drag on a little bit, and I think it will get a bit. People get a little bit bored of the tournament not being completed. Um, just my opinion. Agreed, and I also kind of think like I'm not a fan of these games in the Premiership where they were settling it just by giving 28 nil wins. But I do yeah. kind of this situation that you deserve to lose 28 nil if you're doing that. I mean, they France deserve to be penalised. It's like there's. I do kind of think it's a bit of a joke that Scotland's interrupted Scotland's flow. France gets to play again, as we've said, kind of offline. There's been lots of talk about players not being released to play the next game. You know, it's all. I think they should have just been given a walkover. To be honest, it is a complete mess, as you say. I guess the only thing you'd say is that although they've broke, although this coach has broken the rule, um, there's just no guarantee that he is the one who's brought it in. Yeah. I know that's obviously like where you. <clears throat> that's where the bet would be but like there's just no guarantee that's where it's happened um yeah, yeah, so yeah it's um yeah it's just a bit gutted but i guess yeah six nations aside it's i just wanted to ask you a quick one um at the moment you know presuming the lions lions goes ahead don't want to bore people with lions chat but who yeah. at, at the moment in your team of 15 what country makes up the most players such such a good question um, I mean, I think before, I mean, the start of the season or before the season, I was kind of absolutely ripping a lot of Welsh players, but they've all really turned up. Um, all the big senior players have, haven't they? Yeah, like, yeah, like Alan Wynn and stuff, like, they look like they're nailed on, nailed on again, which is fucking annoying. Um, but, you know, we live I, I actually don't, I actually think it's going to be a very evenly spread squad this year, um, if I'm honest. And actually, Ireland look like losing out the most at the moment, but they've got some good players say, in there. I was, I was about to say that. I think it will probably be about even in terms of England and Wales. Part of that will be Gatland, but also look, they've got some senior players and like Liam Williams will be dead star. Jonathan Davis probably dead star. Alan yeah. Williams dead star. Yeah. And then yeah. maybe one of their one or two of their back row, and then England will probably have about England will probably have about four or five as well. And then I think actually the remaining five players will be split Ireland Scotland, but. I'm actually just well up for that happening because it will be quite a nice, a nice mix-up. Because in the last sort of six months, we've had Six Nations repeat, Autumn Nations Cup, and Six Nations again. And I'm done with some bored of it, but it's just the same teams playing each other. So it'd be quite cool yeah. just to get just get different competition in there. Yeah, and maybe limited by how many players they can pick and stuff because of COVID. And you know, so it's actually there's not been a lot of variety, as you say. So yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Cool. That's the, that's the rugby, though. Um, brush over that. Move on to the cricket, which has equally been, I think since we last <laughs> the pod, um, has equally been a little bit disappointing, unfortunately. Um, I think but just, to, to, just to take a step back, England are 2-1 down in the series. It's a four-match series, so it's either going to be 3-1 to India, 2-1 to India, or 2-0, um, depending on the result of this test. Um, and I think, just taking a step back, as I say, beforehand, we probably... We probably would have taken three-one, um, just because India just being Australia away from home, probably the best team in the world at home in conditions that suit them and don't suit us. Um, I think four-nil or three-three-nil was probably on the cards, so it's not been the, the worst result. But we we were one-nil up, 
Um, so I think the series the series is poised really nicely, and at the moment we're day one into the test. Um, I don't I don't really think we've had the best start, but I'm not ruling anything out um, optimistically in this last last test. But I think just to just to touch on the last two tests quickly, because that's obviously where we've where we've um, the sort of gap since our last pod. Um, we had one one um, sort of th- almost thrashing really in this in the second test, um, and there was a little there was a couple of questions then about the pitch and whether it was. Um, you know, too much, too much spin deteriorating too quickly. But ultimately, I think India did just outplay us. Yeah. They, uh, they they won the toss there, didn't they? And um, and bat batted batted first. Yeah. And just, yeah. Um, but then the, the sort of the last test was the one that was frustrating because on paper that's the test that we should have won because it's a pink ball. It was a day night test. Um, and and all the rest of it. And in the end, the pitch there. Has been has has been really taken out of um out of sort of uh has been the main sort of talking point. It's um we ended up losing in two days. So a test match meant to be five days. We ended up losing in two days. Um, won the toss and batted first. Won the toss and batted first. Um, the the pitch was doing all sorts from day one, um, and we we picked four seamers on a pitch that was spinning spinning all over the place. There's a great couple of social medias on it all, but um, there's a couple of stats that are just groundbreaking. Was it's the shortest test since 1935? It's the first time a batsman, that only two batsmen, have broken 25 runs or something like that. Um, so some real big stats on that. But it'd just be interesting to see, to see what your take is on, on the pitch and whether um, and whether that's like sort of fair game for that to happen. Yeah. Uh... It's so difficult, isn't it? Because it, I mean, it happens at nearly every country in India. At some point, you get your pants absolutely pulled down. I do think, like when they can't even play on it, though, it does actually kind of raise a bit of a question about whether it's worth it. Um, I listened to another the Tailenders podcast today, actually, and they were saying that it was kind of fun to have one of these like freaky tests because it gets people into cricket and it is kind of entertaining. And I think that's a great point. point. And I liked that point as well. So I was like, that is a good point. But they also then said the big caveat is you don't want to have them all the time. And I completely agree with that. You don't want to have boring five-day matches and you don't want really exciting two-day matches. You want four to five-day good matches. That's what you want. But if they happen every once in a while, they happen every once in a while. But it was a bit it was a bit of a joke. But at th- the end of the day, we still gave ourselves a chance of like doing better in that game. We like Crawley hit a 50. Why didn't you know if he'd stuck around? Like we did have chances. So I, I agree, we're outplayed. You know, yeah, that, the that, was, that was the other thing. Sharma ended up hitting a hundred and, and Crawley hit fifty. I just picking up a couple of those points. I think, as you say, if if Pajara and Kohli, who well, Kohli's probably the best bat player in the world, um, batsman yeah. in the world, maybe Smith, um, Pajara again, really good player of spin, and Joe Root, obviously a great player of spin as well. If they're all struggling to score runs, there must be something wrong. It's it's not a fair contest between bat and ball. But I'm with you. I think you know, every once in a while, it's great to have a test like that. Uh, it's great to sometimes get a drawn test, which has just gone on for too long. It's fine. Um, but you don't want too many of that. And arguably, the point was um, that the test before it was a bit short. This, the, the last, the day-night test was a bit short. And this one coming up might be a bit short again because it's just not a fair contest. Um, but we'll see. I think a lot, a lot. I think the main thing that I sort of read into it is actually the players weren't using it as too much an excuse. A lot of it is just sort of ex-players 
uh, and people like us, really. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, exactly. We're not in that. Like at the end of the day, they they still want to execute every time. Doesn't matter what the pitch is like. But the only thing I would tell this to cricket before we, before we potentially move on is like there is a problem in this England battling batting ladder, but we just have a bit of a lack of tenacity. There's a lack of somebody willing, and I was saying to you offline, just to, just to be really belligerent and say, I'm not getting out. And I don't actually care if that means that I run my own teammate out or I, I don't know, have to bat. I don't know, be silly about it. Like, there's nobody who's yeah, got that in their mind. Runs. I just, yeah, I just, I just take 100 yeah. runs, 100 balls and score Yeah, I'm going to sit here and block every ball, but I'm going to bat for three days. That's sometimes what you need to do in test cricket. And I don't know if the younger players are prepared to do that. Yeah, I think just adding to that, it just feels like the only guy who has done that, well, certainly this year, was Joe Roos. It kind of feels yeah. like if he doesn't do it, we don't do it as a team. And and it's kind of been, it's a sort of a problem that we've had for the last uh, however many years, five, ten years. I sort of thought we were getting over it with the likes of Sibley and Burns. And they just oh. kind of have gone, they've taken one step forward, two steps back, um, which is really, really frustrating. But I'm still relatively positive about how we'll get on in the Ashes later this year. But we'll see. I'm a bit worried. I'm a bit worried about the bathroom. So I watched The Edge. I think you've probably watched The Edge, the thing about the 2000 and... Well, basically post-2005, isn't it? But it's 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, so when we reached number one in the world. Yeah, so we definitely recommend watching that. But like, you, you look at the team they have. The batting lineup they had then was a joke compared to what we've got now. Their top six are like six of the best batsmen ever to play for England, I would say. Kurt, it's also, it's, yeah, for me it's, the, for me it's the openers, right? We could always just rely on... I do feel like... I know it's an easy excuse, but I do feel like if we... If Roots was constantly coming in at 100 for two, yeah, we would always get we would always get like 400 just because he would stay in. He all of a sudden we're at like 200 or 200 250 for four, and like people like Butler and Stokes can just get you over the line and then tail wags a little bit. But it is just that, and it's the hardest thing, right? But it's, we we are constantly coming in at 20 for two. It always feels like we're doing that. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, as a, yeah, I was just blown away by how good that batting unit was when you had Cook, Strauss, Trot, Peterson coming in at four, and Ian Bell coming in at five. I mean, it's just relentless, like, uh, relentless quality. And then like Pryor as well, because I think Pryor back Pryor. like seven, didn't he? Um, silly. I missed somebody there, I didn't know who it is, but anyway. But yeah, elsewhere in the cricket, I actually just wanted to touch on a couple of things. Obviously, T20 World Cup later this year. New Zealand, great to see them dicking on Australia. Yeah, um, I love that. Great to see that. Um, players like Guptill back playing well. They've obviously got Williamson, who I just think is a class act. Love him. And then today, I think I sent you it, West, West Indies beat Sri Lanka. And um, there, was, well, there was there was huge drama. One of um, the Sri Lankan bowlers, Pereira, got a hat-trick in an over. Um, and then two overs later, his next over, he goes and goes for 36 runs. Only the third time that that's happened. Kyron Pollard, mate, hit six of the biggest sixes you'll ever see. <laughs> Huge as well, isn't he, mate? He, I actually was trying to think about this. I meant to look it up. Was he also the person? Oh, no, it was Braithwaite, wasn't it, that did it to Stokes in the World Cup? Yeah, man. But some of those hits, you need to look them up. They, they must be like, I said to you, they were like 12s. You must have hit them like 120 metres. They were going miles. <laughs> So, yeah. some, of them, some of them were huge. And I, I did feel for the bowler until I found out he got a hat-trick before. But like, yeah. at one stage, like, Angelo Matthews put his arm around him and stuff like that. It was quite... <laughs> but they had, them, 
they had both Indies on the ropes. They were like 60 for four after nine overs or something, which is crap in T20. And then suddenly they're like 105 for four after yeah. 10. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was, that's definitely worth having a look at. Um, elsewhere, do I want to say anything? Yeah, the, there's a bit of social actually kicking off between the England women and the England men. I don't know if you saw this. Missed, but no, can you call Essentially, me? obviously, the, gate, the test was over in about two days. Um, the third test and the England women were playing like a T20 or an ODI sorry against New Zealand yeah. and they the, the, the England women basically tweeted saying test is over get yourself watching the England women or something like that and obviously the men just Rory, Rory Burns I think just reacted quite badly to it and it's all a little kicked off a little bit but I was just thinking the cheek of the England women because I saw a video today of one of the England women taking um, I think it was a bowler taking um a catch for a run out chance and she's literally got the ball in her hands and knock over the bales and run one of the one of the um opposition players out and instead she turns around and chucks the ball back towards the other end no what she was doing i didn't get that at all neither mate but you know you've got to you've got to watch yourself really but um <laughs> plenty going on the cricket and, and ashwin picked up 400 wickets so um 400 test wickets are worth giving him a little shout out yeah, of course. So yeah, that was the that was the cricket. Um, football quickly. Premier League's looking over. Um, champions wise, City City are on this incredible run, broken you know the most wins in a row for um, an English record. After all, was they one stage in the league they were about twelfth, and they've just gone on on leaps and bounds. Um, as we mentioned earlier, the top four is really going to be interesting to see who gets there. My sort of if I could do a revised prediction, I would maybe have Leicester dropping out and less yeah. Liverpool and Chelsea going in, just because Leicester seems to seem to have too many injuries at the moment. Um, Madison picked one up um, recently. Um, Liverpool Chelsea tonight, isn't it? Yeah. And Chelsea have won their love at half time. So. Wow. Um, elsewhere, um, Champions League's been going on. City, um, City winning quite comfortably there. All the big teams are actually doing quite well. The one, the one big game was sort of Barca PSG, and Mbappe ran away with ran away with one of the performances of the yeah. season really. And it's quite funny he did that, and then sort of the other up and coming star Haaland. The next day did it sort of sort of did a if you, anything you can do I can do better, and then gave a funny interview after basically saying his performance was inspired by Mbappe. So hopefully that's sort of the new Ronaldo versus Messi, but perhaps a little bit more amicable going forward, which is yeah, which is great. Um, but yeah, just coming back to City quickly. I mean, there's a lot, and actually Liverpool in the same breath. There's a lot of talk about certainly in recent years that like Liverpool were the best sort of champions because obviously they, they broke so many stats. They've gone on to essentially be the worst reigning champions. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, know it's a big, I know it's a big claim, probably Leicester, Leicester were worse, but at the moment they could be missing out on the top four. Um, City, meanwhile, again, looks like a great team. It's a bit of a dynasty this last three years, but they can't really be classified as a great team. And, and I think JB Carrick will pick this up on MNF unless they win the Champions League. Yeah. Where, where do you sort of stand on like great Premier League teams and, and whether either of those teams are up there? It's such a, it's actually such a shout. I think Liverpool, the way they played last year, they definitely were up there. But I, I hate about, I don't know if it's just because I don't like Liverpool, but there's just like a complacency about them. They're always like moaning and 
I like Klopp, but like he's always got something to complain about. And I generally think that like City have just handled it way better. They've just stayed quiet and just won games, game after game after game after game. And as you say, now they were on a 23-game winning run or something. But to tie it back to what you were saying about the Champions League, yeah, I watched that same thing with Jamie Carragher, and they, they got all the top teams in Europe, uh, sorry, all the top winning runs in Europe. And there's like of the top eight, City obviously were the only team on there who'd not won the European Cup or the Champions League. And it's such a hole in their, in their CV, isn't it? So I think it's... I kind of agree. I don't think the City team will be remembered the same way until they win it. And I'm not sure if they will. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I do, think it's, I do think there's obviously some huge teams in there. PSG and Bayern are going to be their biggest threats. I think, for me, certainly, Liverpool can't be considered... I know Liverpool will be really unlucky of injuries this year, but all this chat about them being you know, one of the best Premier League teams ever just can't... We can't have it if they're not going to even win it back-to-back. Like A team like a team like Chelsea of 04, 05, arguably could have a bigger stake in the ground um, for it. I think... You know, some of the United teams that won the trebles and also champ- and therefore Champions Leagues and then won it back-to-back as well, obviously just ahead of it. And that's why I think if City win the Champions League this year and also potentially win another league next year, they'll be right up there. But it does just feel a little bit short, very much like because we're watching them now, that's what, why we're saying yeah, it. Agreed. People got short memories. Agreed. Also, I mean, Liverpool don't even look like winning it next year. Now, I might, I might eat my own words there, but, you know, like... As City, so City haven't won it every year, but they've won it nearly every other year. So, like, they'd be narrow thereabouts for Liverpool. If you're going to do it once every 15, 20 years, <laughs> no worries, mate. No worries. And I can, I can actually see a few of the players leaving. I can see someone like a Salah yeah. going to, um, we'll see, we'll see. But yeah, that's that's football. Um, not much has happened. It's the same sort of um, merry go round, really. Same old shit, different day. Some quite a lot of other stuff going on, though. Have you, you must have been watching the tennis. There was lots of yeah. Tennis. I must admit, as soon as I saw Djokovic get through a couple of his pain, um, yeah. injury injuries gates, which I've had enough of with him, um, <laughs> I just knew I knew he'd end up winning as soon as Nadal went out because yeah. I know I know these players that are coming through are are good, but there's certain like this level of winning mentality that Djokovic and Nadal have, and Federer have that if in especially in finals. So I knew that if if he wasn't going to play Nadal. Um, he would beat he would he would beat whoever he was in front of him, um, which, which which was a gutting. But his act, his record is incredible. At the Australian Open, it's one of those like I don't know if I'd rather play him indoors or Rafa on clay, yeah, or, or Federer on grass. They're all so good on those respective surfaces. It's actually mad the record he's got. Yes, yeah, so I was looking. He got some quite good stats in the tennis this week, actually. So yeah, so Djokovic has his record ninth Australian Open, which is pretty cool. But what I found uh, on Wikipedia, so it might be rubbish, but he's, you know, he's the only player ever to have won all the modern ATP Tour events. So he's won all the slams, all the Masters tournaments, and he's won the ATP finals, and no other player's ever done it. That's crazy. I wonder if all those, I guess all those tournaments must have been in place for Federer as well. Well, obviously they're in place because Federer still plays, but I wonder if some of them knew because they went around with Federer, but... That is a mad stat. And one of the stats I sort of saw as well, like just because you've said that, is the Dars never won the ATP finals. So this is the thing. So this is where Djokovic, like he's just consistently, just he is consistently the I do think if Djokovic, Djokovic is a little bit younger, right, than the Dars, I think if, I do think if Djokovic 
just stays fit, he's going to end up being the, the GOAT by stats, yeah. by trophies. He'll have the money. I hate because I, I hate him. Yeah. A lot of people do hate him as well. I kind of hate him as well, but it's what yeah. it is. But to stay with the tennis stats, just um, in the women's game. So actually, we're talking in the men's game about how, you know, it's kind of hard to shift. To shift. Um, so yeah, Djokovic won the final three straight sets against Medvedev, who's one of the up-and-coming men's players. In the women's game, is the complete opposite. Um, Naomi Osaka won the final in two sets, um, and she smashed Serena Williams on the way in. So, in the semifinals, and actually, so again, another cool stat: Osaka has not lost a game of tennis since February 2020. It's her 21st game in a row. So she's won. She's won. This is her fourth Grand Slam title, second in a row because she won the US before this. So that's mad. I actually, I actually like her. She seems very respectful of like. She seems to love Serena as well, which I kind of love. Changing yeah. the guard is the complete opposite. Where the men's game, they're still holding on. These guys and Djokovic, as you say, he's probably got two, three years left. But mate, I like that. I like that analysis. I like that. That's good. I think we should try and wrap up the news, mate, uh, and get onto this. Get onto this myth. Um, before we do so, I want to choose a quick stat of the of the week, or if we can do that, and yeah. go shortest test. Just because I think that is just crazy. That there must have, I don't know how many tests there are each year, but there must be about fifty. And since 1935, yeah. this is the only one that's been done in two days. Did they even like get to the end of the two days. I mean, I didn't know how no. we get into two days. Like tea, just after tea. Yeah, it's probably midway through that last session. Yeah, it's like not even like they didn't even extend the day to finish it. Like no, no, no. It was ridiculous. Um, yeah, I yeah. That's so I had to add to that as the stat, but um, yeah, crazy. Yeah, agreed. What are we doing for what's performance then? Obviously. Performance is yeah, it's tough, isn't it? I, I think we should give it to Osaka, mate. If she's yeah, done yeah, that, beat Serena. Let's give let's give it to her. Um, and then socials, I think, is going to be a t- it's going to have to be a close one, really, between um, that Haaland interview. I really enjoyed that. His interviews are really enjoyable. Um, yeah. Or or all some of the, the stuff about the third test pitch. I've really enjoyed, like even Michael Vaughan's one of him, like on a farm. I think it was just. So prepare, making preparations for the all <laughs> yeah. So much sour grapes, so so good. Yeah, I'm happy with either of those, mate. Oh no, actually, no, no. Social of the week, I've got it, I've got it. Is the Anton Deck links to the rugby? Did you see those? Yeah. Uh, in the Saturday, so is it Saturday? Oh, I forget what that show is called now. Where they have the pranks? It is, yeah. And they have the pranks, and they've got something with the headphone on, and they're telling them what to do. And it is them in the thing talking to the referee. That was my favourite, but it doesn't have to win it. No, I like that. I like it. Let's give, let's give it to that and, and wrap up the news there, mate. Sounds good, man. Okay, then. Myth, myth number one. Let's have a go at a new, a new feature. It's going to be the season three feature. We're going to look at some debunking some myths. And the myth this week is, are footballers overpaid now i found this one i think we both found this one really quite interesting um for people that are interested there is a wealth of information out there to read about football finances i didn't think there would be i thought it'd be quite yeah. kind of a fake world it's not there is loads of stuff out there or just listen so, or just listen to us and you'll know oh i mean this is the download you need this is the 20 minute <laughs> you need i believe you said you 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 were, you were doing the history side of things even though that's that's my degree you you found some some good background. Do you want to kind of do you want to do you want to set the scene? Yeah, mate. So I, th- I think when we think about this myth, I think a, I, th- I think what's what's useful is it's it's actually always kind of been there, right? 
ever since the game turned professional. So I, I recently watched um, a drama on Netflix. So that's the sort of source of information we're going off here. But it's, <laughs> it's called it's called the Gen- it's called the Gentleman's Game, which was um, first looking at how the first professional footballer, a guy called Fergus Souter, Scottish guy, um, was the first guy to get paid um, to play to play football. And immediately, you, what you see there is sort of um, a bit of envy from the other other players, but more actually from factory workers that are working um you know day day jobs and there's an envy that someone's actually getting paid just to play just to play a game and i think that's genuinely genu- generally where the um not the myth but where the opinion that um football players are overpaid sort of comes from um and it's so, so and i think it's more because it's not really you know really seen as work so I think that there's a big part of it that you know people who are doing hard working jobs in manufacturing or nurses or teachers etc are really just thinking football are overpaid because they're not actually working. Um, but yeah, that that's sort of the that's the sort of history point. Um, I think first first professional footballer back in 1880, um, steady rise in terms of pay in the in that sort of early period um, up until the turn of the century. And then in about 1901, 1902, there was this thing that I didn't know about called a, a maximum wage, whereby um, they was tried to put a cap on the amount of money that footballers could earn each week. So I think it ended up starting off at like one pound a week, which I'm not sure what that is in terms of real money now. But um, that, that sort of lasted for the next 60 years. So even though that, that weekly wage, that weekly maximum was in place, um, it did increase slightly. So about in 1960, um, Bill Shankly's Liverpool team was was on about 20. Each each individual player was on about 20 pound a week. Which what did we say that was um, in sort of today's terms? Today's term now about 600 quid was it? Four 500 quid, yeah. In the 60s, wasn't it? So obviously, it's obviously a lot less than the, some of the players are on now, but. It's just it's just quite interesting to see that you know one of the one of the most successful European teams on about each player is on about twenty pound a week compared to now we're talking levels of about you know Lionel Messi is the world best player probably earns um, over a million over a million a week um, which incidentally um, which incidentally is six hundred times the salary of of Boris um, but. Um, so yeah, j- j- just interesting to see that you know that we had this thing called the maximum wage come into play. But I think the idea that footballers are overplayed is really therefore come into, into in, come more and more into sort of public um, opinion over the last sort of fifty years, um, particularly over the last thirty years, really when the Premier League came about, um, because ultimately that is when there was this skyrocket in wages. I think. George Best was on about a thousand pounds a week in 1970. John Barnes, 20 years later, was on ten thousand pounds a week, and then 20 years after that, you're on players like Messi on, on you know, 500k a million a week. So it is just that sort of graph which has skyrocketed in the last 20 years, um, which I which I think is, yeah quite interesting. It's a, it's a relatively new thing, but I think what's quite interesting is. Why why are they paid that much? And, and yeah, why is that? And kind of kind of is it is it fair? Is it a myth that they're therefore overpaid, or is it just standard economics? Or is it supply and demand? And are they worth worth every penny? Um, so I guess just on that supply supply is really restricted, right? You can only get a certain good certain number of good players, um, and and demand 
is rising all the time because teams want the best players because there's so much more money around for them in terms of TV deals, sort of like a derived derived demand. Um, and it'd just be interesting, I know you've done a little bit of work on it, but how much um, each player is actually sort of generating in terms of that TV income and, and whether, therefore, a wage of a million a, a million a week sorry, for Messi, if he's actually generating a million in revenue and therefore suggesting that perhaps he's not overpaid. Absolutely, yeah. So to kind of just jump on that then, I mean, the growth in these players' wages has largely been driven by broadcast revenue, which is, I can't remember kind of when games probably would have first been televised, but that would have been kind of 50s, 60s. Um, that's a good question, actually, the answer to. But obviously that kind of grew significantly, um, has grown significantly over the time, the value of the deals now, I, I, I don't know, they're in the kind of hundreds of millions, if not if not the billions, to be fair, for, for a year of the Premier League. Um, and that is shown in the kind of club um, finances. So broadcast revenue. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point in terms of actually how revenue is increased, because if you go back to when the Premier League first came into play, it was about 200 million for ninth, you know, right. in terms of Premier League TV income. Um, in 1992, and then you go up now. You know, 200 million seems a huge amount, but go up now, and it's it's close to sort of six billion. Um, so the, the the graph there is huge, and that is really what is driving the current increase um, pay for yeah for um, pl- for players. And then on top of on top of the TV income, you've then got you know ticket prices. I mean, m- m- every game is sold out now in terms of Premier League anyway. Um, my dad used to tell me you could get tickets on the day for like a Man United or a Liverpool game, um, and probably for only like the equivalent now of a tenner, five yeah. pounds. Um, in terms of today's money, that would be now it's about sixty pounds a game, and therefore yeah. each time someone like Spurs play a game, they're earning four million on top of all of their share of the six billion that we mentioned earlier. But yeah. sorry, yeah, carry, carrying on in terms of. Oh, uh, yeah. I got stuck. I got stuck up one of my. Uh... My, my figures were wrong. But yeah, I mean, so just going back to the broadcast revenue thing, it's interesting what you say about tickets, but I mean, broadcast revenue accounts for, of the top 20 clubs in Europe, it's 45% of, of the club's revenue is broadcast and only 16% of it is match day. And that includes not only tickets, but also corporate hospitality. So actually, the clubs don't make that much money off tickets because um, surely of that 15%, corporate hospitality must be at least 5%. So you're thinking 10% from gate receipts, which really isn't that much, especially given how much a season ticket is. Um, and it's also been the slowest growing portion of revenue in the football club. So match day revenues have grown quite slowly over the last five years, but broadcast revenues have grown at double, if not three times the speed. So that is really where all of the, all the growth is going. And in, in terms of kind of club revenues, the top 10, it's quite interesting who's in the top 10 teams, actually. So the, the top team in 2019 because I didn't look at the code here, obviously, was was Barcelona, 850 million euros in 2019. A um, few English teams in there, though. Um, so in the top 20, there are actually eight English teams. So we had the most, uh, highest representation of any of the leagues, which largely accounts for the value of the Premier League. Um, but what's really interesting is actually the impact of being in a UEFA competition is massive. So... Arsenal dropped out of the top 10 and dropped to their lowest position, which is 11th, since 2000, because 
we didn't qualify for the Champions League. Is that two or three years in a row now? Mm. And Spurs, by opposite, they're on the opposite side. They actually climbed to their highest, which was eighth in the in the kind of earnings tables, purely because they qualified for the Champions League. So it's quite interesting that. But you hate really that. Oh, mate. I was reading it. And I was like, wait, why are Spurs above Arsenal? This is a bit of a joke. So, uh, so that was really, really, really interesting to bear. Um, but the other, the other kind of interesting thing. So obviously, forty-five percent is broadcast, fifteen percent is match day. The remainder is from is from commercial, which is obviously your sponsorship you'd expect, merchandising, so selling your shirts and stadium tours, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and a lot of the bigger clubs are really, really getting quite good at this. Um, and that is kind of where the gulf really, really starts to to happen, um, because you know bars have such a strong commercial setup. But so this, is like, this is like your fly. This is like your fly Emirates sponsorship, or is it, or is it more so selling selling t-shirts? What what do you think is is more? Joy- so like what I'm trying to get to is whether is how much is how much is that from the players earning it? Exactly, which is a really good point. So I think it's probably predominantly sponsorships. Um, yeah, although the sponsors are tied to the owner, then it's an interesting sort of dynamic there of, of, of where that money is kind of coming from. Um, but yeah, and then, like, then merchandising, I think, then would come second. But as you say, yeah, I was trying to, I couldn't find out kind of how much shirt sales each club does, because um, that would be really indicative of the player. But if you look at money earned per, per first team squad player, the of the of the top ten teams, so Barca, Real Madrid, United, Bayern Munich, PSG, City, Liverpool, Spurs, Chelsea, Juventus, so the top ten teams in Europe in terms of revenue, the average revenue per player is actually only twenty one million. Euros. Well, Which, why, do you, why, do you, why do you say only? Because I think if we're talking about value of players here, on a pure commercial standpoint, 20 million is a very cheap player now. Very, very cheap player. If you're going yeah. to buy a player for 20 million. That's, so I in mean, terms of the value of the player, purely commercially, they are you know, potentially delivering what they're worth. Yeah, exactly. So I guess taking that number then, twenty-one million pounds or, or euros per play, per per player yeah, yeah. is what they're generating in revenue. If we then look at how much um, that they're actually paid um, to see, you know, as a as a ratio, are they being are they being overpaid? So the average average wage of a Premier League player um, in well back in twenty fifteen anyway was one point seven million. So a massive yeah. fraction of that, but it's, it's gone up. It's gone up again. We're talking about this exponential growth almost to about two point five to about two point five million, which is yeah. ninety times more than you know me or you or the average person actually. Um, so there's so two point five million. Quick maths there tells you you know that they're about ten. They're about ten percent in terms of that's what their wages. That's what their that's the revenue they're generating. They generate ten times more than they're paid. Um, obviously, there's other costs that that football clubs um, bear. Right. Um, but what's interesting is that obviously all of the above is clearly growing. So this oh, this argument's not going to go away, and it's only going to end if football popularity and TV um, revenue goes away, which we're not going to see. But I guess if we sort of talk about um, if we talk about whether they're overpaid or not, clearly, clearly in terms of ninety times the average. Um, um, person it, it suggests they are overpaid and Messi earning 600 times more than Boris well, perhaps he's underpaid but, um, <laughs> but 600 times more clearly should should someone from an ethical standpoint be be earning more than that 
Um, but I think in terms of the whole purpose of this is for us to try and debunk it, right? Um, I think a couple of ways we can try and go about debunking um, this is, first of all, the point on they're generating two, two, 21 million sorry, per, per player. They're paid only 10% of that. Um, you know, if from a pure commercial perspective, it seems like quite a good deal for football clubs. Yeah, I think that there is there is the cost. I think you're right. I think there's the cost point to bring in where, like, you are right. There's a lot of like they have to they have a very very high cost base. Um, you know, maintaining a stadium, all the marketing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there is all that. But yeah, I think if you look at it purely based on like revenue generated per person, it's surprising actually how I actually was surprised at how much some of these clubs make. I'm going to be honest. I didn't think Barcelona would nearly be a billion euro enterprise. That's that did surprise me even though they're huge um but i think you do have to you do have to think about the value of the tv um stuff and you've just got to look at your own kind of monthly statement like how much it costs to have sky how much it costs to have bt you know they're selling the games for like 15 pounds a game at the moment um and and i you know it's it is a lot of money it's so so much money in, yeah. in that broadcast it's only growing it's These interesting, isn't it? Because you, you hear the news about Barcelona and Real Madrid struggling, but you look at the numbers in terms of TV and it's only growing, as you say. It's all derived demand. It's all um, yeah. it's all sort of makes commercial sense. And I think just to debunk it, if, um, if we're going to say footballers are overpaid, we kind of need to say every top dog at every company is overpaid, or certainly big companies, because they all earn not similar. I mean, I appreciate not everyone's Lionel Messi, but some of the some of the guys at the top dogs um, at, at sort of top commercial firms are earning you know similar percentages of their firm's revenues, um, and again from an ethical perspective, you can definitely say that they're overpaid. But why yeah. why, why are we highlighting footballers so much more than um, you know someone who, someone who's a top dog at say um, HSBC? HSBC, yeah, exactly, yeah, it's very true. I mean, I think they do come under scrutiny as well, and. Um... And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, they're definitely not generating the same sort of public goodwill that you get from watching Messi play. Because I do think that's the interesting thing about football is, is there a price? Can you really put a price on what they do for us, you know, as sports fans? Like, we tune in all the time. We absolutely love watching them playing. If they didn't, you know, if Messi and Ronaldo didn't play, football wouldn't be the same. There isn't there is another price attached to them, which you just can't put money on, which yeah. you don't get these big banks because nobody knows who these people are, because um, nobody cares. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> which is true. But, yeah, an interesting stat would be like, oh, how many? T- yeah, how many? Because they often companies often publish, don't they? How many times their average worker, the CEO, earns? So if that makes sense. So the CEO is on ten million, and everybody else is on hundred grand. How many times do they earn their salary? It'd be interesting thing to, to do that for footballers as well. Yeah, definitely. I think another way to just debunk it as well is clearly we we are focused here on the stars. Because that's what everyone, that's what attracts this myth that, you know, you see Ronaldo earning 500k a week or whatever it is, you're like, that is, that's absurd. But is it, are all footballers like that? And the answer, the answer, the short answer is no. You know, the average um, wage in, again, dated bit old, five years old in the championship, so England's second tier, um, is, is, is 300 grand. So compare that yeah. to 300 so, yeah. Yeah, three hundred grand a year compared to the two two point five million we had in the Premier League. So, 
you know, less about six about sixth of um of the salary there. And then in League One, further league below, seventy grand a year. And in League Two, forty grand a year. And the UK average is thirty That's grand. So obviously they're earning more than the UK average, and they're probably an argument argument for them being overpaid would again be suggesting that they they do less work. You know they probably have less days and less hours working, but you know forty grand for some footballers is not is not uh, unless it's professional footballers in League Two is not you know that much higher than the average salary. Isn't is, are they being overpaid then? Well, also I mean just to go on the working hours thing. I mean, from whatever I read or listen about footballers, they have to work, like the work, yes, they don't do many training hours a day, yes, but they have to rest a lot because you have to, your body has to be, it's like musicians or singers, you have to look after your voice. That is your asset. Their asset is their body. They have to rest. So they can't necessarily afford to work more hours in a day because I'm sounding super sympathetic of them because I'm not normally sympathetic of them. But that, <laughs> 40, so that 40 grand has blown my mind. I didn't realize it was that low. But I like... League two because you can't then afford you can't afford to have a second job because you need to rest to be able to play on Saturday and if you don't rest on Saturday you get injured the club sack you eventually because you've not played you're you you what are you because a lot of these guys and girls haven't been to university probably have left school quite early um, they might not have a lot to fall back on necessarily uh, that is that is very I interesting think, I think that I think that's a great just leads on to two other quick points the first point being. The whole point about looking after your body, etc., and and having to do so because you're sort of actually part, you're you're owned by the club to some degree, right? Oh, the club pays you. Yeah. So when you sort of say so and so is on the bench earning this much, well, yeah, they're obviously sitting there not not playing for that game for ninety minutes, but the whole other week they are having to train, they are having to do this, they are not allowed to drink, they're not, that's you know, yeah. there is yeah, that, yeah. there is that whole point, and then the second point is not having much to fall back on. Um, and they, you know, the career of football is probably 15, 20 years, if you're lucky. Um, no, not 20 years, sorry. 15, yeah, about 15 years, if you're lucky. Um, and so that whole point about once you've taken advantage of this potential high high salary that you've got for that period of time, do you have, you know, do you have a long-term career after that that you can still earn money from? Maybe not in some places. Don't get me wrong. In, in a lot of a lot of the time, they can go into punditry and coaching, etc. But not all of yeah. them. Yeah, you have to be a personality for that. And I should just link back onto this kind of earnings thing. I did. I just had a quick look about uh, kind of how footballers pay tax because I thought this was actually potentially an interesting thing as well. And the, ta- the tax regime really, I mean, probably not surprisingly, but really penalises players lower down the leagues. Because footballers essentially, very, very simply, get paid in two ways. You get paid normal income tax, sorry, normal income, just like you and I do, just like most, most people do, and you pay tax at the gate, happy days. But they can also get paid in image rights, which is basically the club's right to show you on posters, to put your name on T-shirts, all these sorts of things. Basically, me being William Brown is worth X million pounds a year, which it, which it would be like <laughs> And basically, footballers, so they pay normal rates of income tax like anybody else, but they only pay 19% tax on image rights. So what a lot of players do is they funnel, or clubs funnel a lot of, a lot of the pay through image rights, so the players pay less tax. Now, that's fine if you're like Paul Pogba, if you're Aguero, if you're De Bruyne, because the taxman doesn't notice that you've got $5 million going through your image rights because you are so famous. But if you're Liam Lewis and you're playing for Charlton and you're trying to put 300 grand through your image rights and you're only taking 20 grand as a salary suddenly hmrc aren't so aren't so happy about that 
So it's, it's quite interesting. Image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that is, yeah. again, that is again a good point, sort of further exacerbating, exacerbating that lower, you know, lower down the leads you get, the less invert, open quotation marks, overpaid, closed quotation yeah. you, you are really. Um, and actually interesting, I didn't know that about the 19% on image rights, because you always hear that footballers pay so much more in tax, but perhaps they... Perhaps they don't on a proportional basis because they can put so much through this. Well, I, think, I think this is it. I think proportionally, yeah. And I think that's the case with anybody, isn't it? Like any CEO, yeah, they'll pay more tax than you and I, of course, but they will pay tax much more efficiently. Yeah, um, set up companies, etc. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. But I think the other interesting thing about the leagues is that it's, in a way, what we're uncovering here is that it's an incredibly meritocratic system. The clubs that are better get paid more for being on TV. Therefore, they pay their players more, play their players more, pay their players more, sorry. And likewise, if you're in League Two, you're not on TV, you don't get paid for being on TV, you can't sell the tickets, you're not a good enough club, therefore you pay your players, your players less. It's, like it is, it's, it's exactly that, and it does just come back to... Oh, it sounds pretty boring, it does come back to demand and supply and, um, yeah, economics, and, and economics, really, because the limited supply of players, the limited supply of good players, obviously... Um, Demand will, will demand the higher 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 wage, and the reason they can demand a higher wage is not only because they're limited, but also because they're generating so much more money um, for their for their respective employers, yeah. if you will. And then tip players that are not generating as much revenue for their clubs, there's so, probably so much more of them at that standard that they mm. generate less revenue, and also they're paid they're paid yeah. equally less. So I think what we're trying to say is, from a commercial perspective. Footballers paid what they're worth. Yeah, summary. it's the market. It's the market demands. Like you know, and the, the thing is, the market is it's not that liquid, is it? I guess because it's quite hard to move clubs. But when players move clubs, they have a lot of power. You can ask for what you want, and and if you hear that if Neymar leaves and he hears that Messi's getting this, he's going to try and get what Messi gets because he thinks he's just as good. But then they'll, the club will push back. So it's quite like in that sense. Although there's it certainly a lot of player power, isn't there? What are you going to say? Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, I say that, but although, I mean, just as an Arsenal fan, there's been big mess about certain transfers and transfer fees and wages that we've negotiated recently, Pepe being one, Willian being another. So absolutely, maybe I'm wrong and it's not a free market at all. It's, it's absolutely completely closed and it's just driven by these agents. That's another debate, which we... Which yeah, we, that's, a, that's a whole mindful. I haven't done the research for that one. I <laughs> Well, I do think it's interesting on this whole sort of... Uh, not only are they overpaid, but they are kind of, to some degree, uh, yes, with the agents, but they are kind of in charge of their own sort of salary, which yeah. is which is huge, really, especially when we go back to that whole history point and about 1961 when the maximum wage was just obliterated and, and removed. Before that, all the powers with football own, football club owners and... Um, yeah, the, the the people who actually own, own football clubs. So it's completely changed since then, and it's sort of like opening opening a can of worms. But what they did back in '61, and it's just exploded in the last 20 years. But um, I guess what we're saying is, com- commercially, they're sort of they're they're not overpaid. Is that what we're saying? But should anyone be paid? You know, a hundred, a thousand times more than somebody else someone be paid a thousand times more than than a nurse if messi if messi crashed in a car tomorrow someone who's paid a thousand times less than him would be treating him 
Exactly. But then, uh, so just a bit, I, I completely agree. Thanks for coming out. But I think actually the, the COVID pandemic has made us all realize how weird, how we do actually value these people a lot more than we realized. Because when football wasn't on, I mean, you and I were saying, you were like, what do we do? Like, we have no rhythm to our life, no story, nothing's going on. So there, there is a value to sports yeah. and things that you can't, put, you can't put a figure on. Uh, well, they've tried to put a figure on and it's massive. But yeah, they, I mean, they're grossly overpaid for what they actually contribute but I think recently we've actually realised that they potentially contribute more than we, we thought they I like that mate I think that's a good note to end on and I also like the point that only a few of them are grossly overpaid and a, yes. fair, a fair chunk of them you might just hear footballers straight away but they're not all getting yeah. 500k a, a week but I like that. I actually think that's a great little um Missed the bunking session there. I've enjoyed, I mean, I've enjoyed that. I don't know if anybody else has, but I've enjoyed that. No, mate, the things that you pull out about the history and that 40 grand at League Two, that's, that's, whoever meets me this weekend, absolutely nobody meets me this weekend, obviously, because of COVID, but whoever <laughs> comes into contact with me in the next two weeks, you are getting an earful. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Right, let's close off, let's close off that section and we'll, be, we'll, we'll, um, we'll try and think of another one to debunk in the next few weeks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, right. So that's, that's the first myth done, debunked, if you will. Um, yeah. We'll move on. I don't think we really have a, a you know a name for this section yet. But I just quite you know, a little little history of, history of the week section throwback throwback Thursday. Um, the one the one I wanted to pick up on was sort of the sort of like a anniversary if you will of Roger Bannister unfortunately dying in 2018 of course legend. yeah absolute legend first sub four minute mile yeah you know, I'm struggling to do a sub four minute k at the moment um, <laughs> so fair, fair have you tried a four minute mile before I've never tried it it's okay. crazy quick. <laughs> uh, I think my fastest mile would be just under sub six genuinely um, yeah work, work that one out while going to the next one um, <laughs> The yeah the other one I saw was back in 1983, which I just think is mad. Um, the 1981 Derby winner was was stolen, was kidnapped, um, and I don't think it's ever been found since. But crazy that someone just st- stole um stole a, a winning a winning um a winning stallion. Ridiculous. Wow. That's crazy. I was actually cycling, you know, the other week, um, and we were going through Epsom. And suddenly just turn this corner and you can literally cycle right next to the race course. It's absolutely quite incredible. I would like recommend it massively. It's a really open road and you like approach with the like track on your left and then you sweep round to behind the grandstand and like ride down the straight. It's quite funny to say that. Pretty unbelievable actually. Mate, yeah, so just saying six minute mile is... Uh, six minute mile. He's in a four minute mile. Sugar, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, he's I doing. Could, that's a two. It's a two minute thirty k. That's mad, mate. I mean, that's basically like Kipchoge marathon pace, isn't it? But yeah, it's crazy. No, it's much quicker. Much quicker. Yeah, it's quicker. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Scenes. It's like you saying, "Oh, that's like hundred meter sign." Yeah. <laughs> Christ, let's end on that depressing note. Yeah, that's it. He's, he's, yeah, that's it. We're not running anymore. It's done. Well, anyway, that was a pleasure, mate. Good yeah. Day. Cheers. Anyway, and we'll be waiting for the call up in the meantime. We will. See you in a bit.